copyright notice. The contents of this podcast, including intro music, are copyright Phantom Femme. The podcast artwork is copyright Isabeau of WAGproductions.org. This labyrinth, the Phantom of the Opera, in Eric's times, and ours. Hello everyone, this is Phantom Femme, your host as always. And welcome to episode 15, the first episode of the second year of In This Labyrinth. Is that not awesome? I think that's very exciting. And of course, thank you all, both those who've been listening from the beginning and those who are newly joining the journey now, for being along for the ride and helping make this happen. Anyway, I've got what I hope will be a really great or at least a really interesting episode here for all of you. And I want to leap right into that, because unfortunately, it's probably going to run a bit long. Sorry about that, but there was no sort of logical good place to break it up. So, as I said, I want to get to it ASAP because of that. Just a brief reminder before I do, though, about the little non-competitive contest thing. You'll recall last episode for the one-year anniversary of the show, I put out two questions, and if you answer one or both of them correctly, you will get a poster version of the podcast artwork. It's non-competitive because everyone who answers correctly will get one, and maybe I should have mentioned this last episode, I mean an actual physical hard copy poster that you can put up on your wall, not just a virtual one. So question one is, episodes two and three of this podcast are called P.O.T.O. and The Trouble with Normal. What famous Canadian singer-songwriter's music is The Trouble with Normal a reference to? Tell me the song, the artist, or ideally both, and younger millennials, you'll probably have to Google this one, because he might not be someone you'll be readily familiar with. Then question two is, in episode three of the show, I described the Phantom's lair in the ALW stage musical as, quote, specifically a space where the beauty of music and creative self-expression is more important than the beauty of faces, unquote. Now, that is a riff on a line from a different version of Phantom. Which one? So, yeah, answer either one or both of those two questions correctly, and I will send you a hard copy version of the podcast artwork to put up on your wall. And you can send in your answers by tweet at ITL Podcast or by old-fashioned email at inthislabyrinth at yahoo.com. And I think you should also be able to DM the show on Facebook from the Facebook page, which, of course, is In This Labyrinth, The Phantom of the Opera in Eric's Times and Ours, just like the title of the podcast because, yeah, I wanted to do something kind of fun 
just in honor of the fact that the show has now been on the air one whole year. So I hope you'll all have fun with it and send me your answers. And thanks for your indulgence there. Okay, so for this episode, I want to talk about something that I've actually been meaning to get to since all the way back when I started the podcast. And that's the Lawrence Connor production of the Lloyd Webber Phantom. That is the touring production that's been making its way around the U.S. and Canada since 2013, directed by a guy named Lawrence Connor, which is why the productions sort of come to be known as his, based on a touring production that he also directed in the U.K. in 2012. And I want to talk about this production, I've wanted to talk about it for a while, because being a major touring production, it's obviously had a huge impact on the Phantom world. It's probably a lot of folks' first experience of Phantom, but it is a non-replica production. It has been significantly redesigned. The, the sets have been redesigned, and a lot of the staging, the blocking, has been significantly reconceptualized, redesigned, from the original production that plays in London and on Broadway. It is the ALW version libretto. It is Lloyd Webber's music and Charles Hart's lyrics. But, as I said, the staging and set design, in particular, have been significantly reconceptualized and redesigned, reworked from the original. So the look of the show is very different. And the feel of the show is very different too. And it's been really interesting in doing the background research for this episode to observe the divide in opinion, in reaction to the new look and feel of the show. Critics at least those that I've read so far, seem universally to love it. The reaction among PHAN fans, though, has been much more mixed and overall much more negative. I have read some fans who say they enjoyed it, although I have read no fans so far who say they liked it better than the original. And many fans even among those who say they did enjoy it, had issues with the restaging and redesign. And many fans, I'm tempted to say a majority, but I don't actually have the data to demonstrate that, but certainly many fans outright hate it. Certainly all of the in-depth fan reviews that I read, all but one, sorry, of the in-depth fan reviews that I read of the Lawrence Connor production were extremely negative. Pretty much the only good things they had to say about it were that the singing and the orchestra were gorgeous, Carlotta, Piangi, and the managers were funny, and yeah, some of the sets looked cool. But even the less harsh, somewhat more positive fan reviewers generally agree with the more negative ones that this new production is nowhere near as breathtaking as Hal Prince's original staging and Maria Bjornsson's original set designs. And also, all of the in-depth fan reviews that I read raise serious concerns, express serious concerns, about the way that the redesigned production, the way that the new staging and set design impacts the storytelling. And I have to say that from everything that I've read in the wonderfully in-depth fan reviews, and also from what I've heard from those whom I've gone to the Lawrence Connor Phantom with, I share their concerns. And so that's what I want to talk about here in this episode. I want to talk about the ways that some of the changes Lawrence Connor and his creative team have made to their production of Phantom alter the storytelling and the character portrayals in ways that, A, I feel, along with many of the fan reviewers I read, aren't in the spirit of the original production, and B, quite honestly, are downright problematic.
Now, point of full disclosure, I cannot see the new staging myself. The only part that I can see at this point is the pyrotechnics. So I'm very much going on what I've read in the reviews and in the fan reviews and on what was described to me by my mom after she and I saw it together in 2017. But she was able to give me a very in-depth and knowledgeable description of what was going on on stage, thanks to her own background in anthropology, but also as an actress and dancer. Also, though, although I have actually seen the original staging and set design of Phantom, I used to have enough vision to do that, although not in particularly fine detail, it has been a very long time. It has been, my goodness, nearly three decades since last I had enough vision to actually see Phantom when I saw the original production of it here in Toronto. So, yes, I am relying significantly on my memory of that, as well as on descriptions that I've read and heard. That being said, however, such is the power of Hal Prince's original staging and Maria Bjornsson's original set designs that I can still see them and remember them quite vividly and clearly, even though I haven't actually physically seen them in almost 30 years. So I trust my memory, along with the descriptions that I've read and heard, which have been very helpful in filling in some of the details that were a bit too fine for me to pick up. Anyway, I thought I ought to state all that as, as I said, a point of full disclosure, before actually getting into a discussion of the changes that Lawrence Connor has made to Phantom from the original production. And lastly, just before I get into that, I will, of course, post links to all the reviews and fan reviews that I've been referring to in the blog entry for this episode. So, the first change I want to talk about is to the overall look, the overall aesthetic of the show. And there's a bunch of components to that. First of all, Connor himself describes what he's going for as a, quote, grittier, more realistic, unquote, look. And the idea that, in the words of one review, quote, the glamour is only makeup deep, unquote. And so what he's done is that while he's kept the lavishness and opulence of the sort of play-within-a-play fake opera sequences, so the Hannibal rehearsal and performance, Act 1, Scene 1, Il Mudo, Act 1, Scene 9, Don Juan Triumphant, Act 2, Scene 7, and he's attempted to keep, although the fan reviewers I read, and I agree, think ultimately unsuccessfully, the lavishness and opulence of the masquerade scene, Act 2, Scene 1, and I'll get to why I don't think he's done that successfully in a bit. All the scenes that occur out of the public eye, as it were, the actually intimate, interpersonal scenes like Angel of Music, The Mirror, Act 1, Scenes 2 and 3, the lair sequences, so... Act 1, Scenes 4 through 6, and Act 2, Scenes 8 and 9, the graveyard scene, Act 2, Scene 5, etc., have all been given this very, well, gritty look. So, for example, with brick walls and exposed pipes for backdrop in the backstage scenes, also a brick wall background in the Journey to the Lair sequences, Act 1, Scene 4, and Act 2, Scene 8, with this kind of yellowish, sepia-tone lighting. And the Lair itself, Act 1, Scenes 5 and 6, and Act 2, Scene 9, is a fully realized, fully fleshed out, if unspectacular, room with a full bed and a few candles on the organ and various odds and ends. It's described in the reviews as the home of a, quote, magpie mind, unquote, who's been stealing old opera props. And so the effect that this grittier look, 
Mom described it as an almost film noir look for everything but the fake opera sequences. The effect that this has is to gut all of the sensuality, all of the romanticism, all of the grandeur from all of the key, most important scenes of the show. So, for example, in the Lair sequences, especially Act 1, Scene 4, the boat journey is very truncated. I gather there's a bit more boat and lake action in Act 2, Scene 8, the Down Once More sequence, but in Act 1, Scene 4, the title song, it just makes one pass across the stage. There's no evocative passage across the travelator catwalk things across the top of the stage. You just see the Phantom and Christine very clearly going down the stairs against the brick wall background. Though admittedly people do say that the way the stairs kind of emerge out of the wall is very cool. And although there are candles apparently floating in the air while they do that descent down the stairs... When they get to the lake part and the boat's one little pass across the stage, there's no candles coming up out of the lake, out of the stage. There's no candelabras coming up. There's no portcullis. And when you get to the lair, the organ only has a few candles. There's no boat turning into a bed. There's no throne. There's an ordinary bed in an ordinary, rather mundane room. So, as you can see... The whole setting of the labyrinth and the lair has been very much de-romanticized. And a similar de-romanticization runs through all of what should be the more intimate, interpersonal scenes in the show. Whether in the visual aesthetic of the set design and or in the blocking that, for example, in Music of the Night and All I Ask of You keeps Raoul and the Phantom each standing or moving quite far apart from Christine, except for when the Phantom picks her up when she falls down in Music of the Night or when she and Raoul kiss in All I Ask of You. And that far-apart blocking really lessens the intimacy and chemistry between the characters and, again, de-romanticizes those scenes. Oh, and there's no broken mirror with the Christine mannequin in the wedding dress behind it in the Lawrence Connor production either. She does wear, Christine does wear the wedding dress in the final lair, Act 2C9, but it's not juxtaposed with its appearance in Music of the Night the way it is in the original production. In addition to this deromanticization, as the description of the lair probably hints at, the set designs and much of the blocking in the Lawrence Connor production is very literal. So, whereas in the original, what Hal Prince and Maria Bjornsson would do would be to fill in sort of the key anchor points of a set and then let the rest sort of fade away into darkness and invite, indeed require, the audience to enter in and fill in the rest with their own imagination, the sets in the Lawrence Connor production have the details as fully filled in as possible. So, for example, the manager's office is a fully fleshed-out office. The lair, as I said, is a fully fleshed-out room. And even in Act 2, Scene 2, when Madame Giry tells Raoul what she knows of the Phantom's past... Although her lines are, thank God, unchanged from the original stage version, instead of just having her and Raoul alone on a mostly dark stage with the lantern and the audience left to visualize what she's talking about in their own minds, they're, again, in that fully realized, fully fleshed out backstage set with the brickwork and the pipes, and in fact, the flashback sequence from the Jarek, or a version of it, is being projected, I assume, on the backdrop behind Madame Giry, so that you're actually seeing the Phantom's backstory as she's telling about it. So very little, if anything, is left to the audience's imagination to fill in. As well as this, 
the way set changes are handled in the Lawrence Connor production is with a giant rotating drum that contains the set pieces, that contains the different sceneries, and opens up various compartments to reveal them. But, except for the Journey to the Lair sequences, so Act 1, Scene 4, and Act 2, Scene 8, and I assume the faux opera sequences, Act 1, Scene 1, Act 1, Scene 9, uh, Hannibal and Il Mudo, and Act 2, Scene 7, Don Juan Triumphant, because those scenes tend to go very tall, too, at least they did in the original production, except for those scenes, all of the scenery, all of the action, is contained within the lower half of the drum. So this gives the show a really low ceiling. There's not much vertical space most of the time. And it also really focuses, even confines the action to sort of center front of the stage. Like, to the point of actually interfering with sight lines of people who are sitting on the sides or in the boxes of the house. So I've read. And the result of this is that whereas the original staging and set design had a very expansive feel, it really used all of the stage, both horizontally and vertically, and could make even quite a small stage, like the Pantages, now the Ed Mervish, theater here in Toronto, which at the time was the smallest stage on which a full phantom had ever been performed, it could even, the original staging and design, could even make a small stage like that seem much bigger than it was. The Lawrence Connors, the Lawrence Connor Productions staging and design with the drum has the opposite effect of making even quite a large stage like the one at the National Arts Center in Ottawa, where Mom and I saw it in 2017, look small and crammed. And this cramming of most of the action into the center front of the stage, combined with the literalism of the set design and staging, really contribute to the deromanticization that I was talking about before. Because you lose that sense of expansiveness that the original production had, and you lose that sense of your imagination being invited in to be an active participant. And then lastly, at least in terms of the overall aesthetic of the Lawrence Connor production, it really denies the Phantom or deprives the Phantom of the sort of larger-than-life aura of mystery and power that he has in the original. And it does this in two ways. First of all, like in the 2004 movie, it reveals the behind-the-scenes, as it were, of a lot of the Phantom's tricks. So, for example, in the notes scenes, Act 1, Scene 8, and Act 2, Scene 3, instead of just hearing the Phantom's disembodied voice, like you do in the original, in the Lawrence Connor production, I gather you actually see the Phantom prowling around above the manager's office, I believe, reading his notes. Similarly, in Act 1, Scene 9, Il Mudo, Carlotta has the atomizer spray bottle thingy, and I believe you, again, actually see the Phantom switch it so that she's made to croak to lose her voice by mundane poisoning instead of by the Phantom's ventriloquism. And also, you explicitly see him kill Joseph Bouquet, and apparently it's not done all that believably, so there's not the kind of shock and surprise as in the original when you just, at the end of the Dance of the Country Nymphs, just suddenly see Joseph Bouquet's body drop down onto the stage, out of nowhere. Indeed, the only illusions of the Phantoms that are left mysterious are the self-playing piano, I believe, in Act 2, Scene 4, the Don Juan Triumphant rehearsal, the fireballs and the stage bursting into flames in the graveyard scene, Act 2, Scene 5, and that's made, if not more mysterious, then certainly weirder, 
by the fact that he doesn't have the skull staff in the Lawrence Connor production. He just somehow does it with his hands, which I could see and which would actually be kind of cool in the original production where the Phantom has that larger-than-life aura of magic and mystery and power, but which is kind of incongruous in the Lawrence Connor production because of how much it's tried to demystify the Phantom everywhere else. To suddenly have him be able to throw fire just with his bare hands is kind of like, okay, huh? And then lastly, the Phantom's final disappearance at the end of the final lair, Act 2C9, is also actually left mysterious, although, in my opinion, not nearly as effectively so as in the original. And I'll get to why in a bit. But then, the second way that the Lawrence Connor Productions staging takes away the Phantom's aura of mystery and power is something really interesting, and bless the fan reviewers for pointing this out. And that's that in certain key scenes of the original production, when the Phantom appears, he's elevated in the staging. So, for example, in the rooftop scene, Act 1, Scene 10, when the Phantom makes his entrance, he's way high up on the Angel. Similarly, in Masquerade, in Act 2, Scene 1, when the Phantom appears, he's right at the very top of the staircase, above everybody else. In the graveyard scene, Act 2, Scene 5, he comes out from behind the cross and is on top of the tombstone, and in fact shoots the fireballs from up there. And of course, in the final lair, Act 2, Scene 9, he sits up on the very tall throne, which puts him a little bit above Christine and Raoul. So, in all these scenes in the original, the Phantom is literally, visually put on a different level from the other characters by the staging. And of course, that's brilliant because it shows his power, but also his isolation. Well, in the Lawrence Connor production, in all of these scenes, the Phantom enters at stage level. So, in the rooftop scene, the it's actually an Apollo's lyre statue nodding to LaRue rather than the angel of the original production. But in any case, it actually rolls onto the scene at stage level instead of being suspended way up high. Similarly, the masquerade scene in the Connor production doesn't use the grand staircase, so the Phantom enters down at floor level, down at stage level, like all the other characters. And of course, the final lair, Act 2C9, doesn't use the throne, so he's not elevated there either. And then in the graveyard scene, Act 2C5, he doesn't emerge from behind the cross on top of the mausoleum, on top of the tombstone, like in the original. He just walks onto stage. So, in all these scenes, the Phantom is literally kept at the same level as everybody else. And it's really interesting, because Lawrence Connor describes what he's trying to do as, quote-unquote, humanize the Phantom, but in fact, the effect that it has is of undercutting your sense of the Phantom's genius, and therefore, as I said, denying him or depriving him of that larger-than-life aura of power that he has in the original. So then, as well as these changes to the overall look and feel, to the overall aesthetic of the production, there have been specific changes made to certain key scenes. So, for example, as I was mentioning before, the Masquerade, Act 2, Scene 1, doesn't use the Grand Staircase, and also the costumes and the palette of the costumes have been very much simplified. And as a result, A, I gather from the fan reviews that it's just not as visually stunning as the original, and B, you lose or you get far less of 
that brilliant juxtaposition that I talked about back in episode eight of the contrast between all the people playing at being the grotesque or the monster for a night for fun and the phantom for whom that's really his life, right? So then act one, scenes four and five have been turned into a weird, slightly coerced music lesson. So during Christine's high vocalizations at the end of the title song, instead of doing the sing my angel of music bit that the Phantom does in the original, he stands fairly far away from her yelling vocal instructions, yelling at her to sing and to breathe and stuff like that. And then in Music of the Night, he puts a music stand in front of her, and then after she's looked at the music for a while, he puts a blindfold on her and leaves it on for most of the song. And in fact, as I understand it, he kind of forces the blindfold on her over her objections. And then shortly after he finally takes the blindfold off, she kind of crumples to the floor, and then he picks her up and tucks her into the bed. Now, don't get me wrong, there are ways this scene could have been done, could have been played, that would have been totally hot. If he'd coaxed Christine to put on the blindfold instead of imposing it on her, and if these scenes had been staged with an understanding, like the original has, of how integrally linked, of how integrally intertwined music is with the phantom sexuality. But the way Lawrence Connor's done these scenes, as I said, he's turned them into a weird, slightly coerced music lesson that is gutted of pretty much all of the sensuality and eroticism that's there in the original version, and that made the title song and music of the night some of, if not the hottest scenes in the show in the original. But in fact, in the Lawrence Connor production, these scenes come across as quite cold. Technically brilliant, but emotionally cold. Connors also made significant changes to the first unmasking, Act 1, Scene 6, and to the final lair, Act 2, Scene 9. And... Uh, here's where we begin to get into the problematic, I would argue. So, in Act 1, Scene 6, so I remember slash Stranger Than You Dreamt It, instead of having the Phantom be composing at his organ and then Christine comes up behind him and snatches off his mask, in the Connor production... He does start off, the Phantom does start off working, composing at his organ, but then he himself stops and takes off his own mask and does something which looks to most of the fan reviewers I read like washing his face. One fan reviewer who I guess was sitting closer and could see more details described that he had a rag and a bottle and started, like, wiping his face with the rag. So it could be meant to be some kind of treatment for his face, but it's unclear what he's doing there. But in any case, he takes off his own mask to do it, and so instead of unmasking him, Christine just comes up and catches him unmasked. Now, there are two problems with this way of doing this scene. The first is that, as many of the fan reviewers pointed out, it simply does not ring true, right? Because if you've got enough internalized shame over your quote-unquote deformity to be not only wearing a mask, but on top of that, living five stories underground in the cellars of an opera house and pretending to be a ghost so that nobody sees you— it's simply not believable that you're then going to just be casually unmasked where the girl you're supposed to be, desperately in love with, could just accidentally 
see you unmasked, could just accidentally see your face, right? And speaking as someone who has lived with that kind of shame, I mean, obviously not to the extent of hiding out in the cellars of an opera house, but nevertheless has lived with a species of that shame over being a hirsute, bearded, femme, person socialized female. Like, just based on my own personal experience, I find that Lawrence Connor's way of playing that scene rings false. Like, when I think about the lengths that I used to go to just to hide my body hair and beard from people whose opinions I valued, never mind anyone I was attracted to or, you know, romantically interested in. Yeah. So this idea of Lawrence Connors that the Phantom's going to just casually unmask himself where Christine could see him. No, it doesn't work that way. But then the second thing that's really problematic about this scene is that so Christine comes up and catches him unmasked and he yells and screams at her anyway. The damn you, you little prying Pandora speech is still there. But whereas in the original, he might be overreacting but he has a legitimate grievance because she took off his mask without permission. In Connor's version of this scene, he doesn't. Because he was unmasked already, and from what I can tell, not even behind a closed or locked door. And yet, he flies off the handle at her when she catches him unmasked. So, the way Lawrence Connor's done this scene frames the Phantom's anger and pain and outrage and hurt as completely groundless. Now, like with the previous scenes, like with the title song and music of the night, Act 1, Scenes 4 and 5, there are ways that you could have done this scene that would have worked. Like, there are ways that you could play with the idea of him having to do some kind of treatment for his face, because, in fact, that is a reality that many disabled and disfigured and or disfigured people have to live with, of having to do medical treatments around their condition and having internalized shame around that because we're told that that's pitiful and that it's the absolute opposite of the hot and sexy that we want to be. And the whole idea around, oh my god, I don't want this person that I'm so attracted to to know about this because they'll look at me with pity. But then if we really get together, they're going to find out about it eventually anyway. So when and how do I tell them about it? Right? So if Connor's going for realism and had any sensitivity whatsoever, he could have used this way of staging the scene of the Phantom, you know, taking off his mask and applying something to his face, he could have used that staging to play around with those ideas, with that whole sort of aspect of that experience. But to make that work, to make that believable, you'd have to have the Phantom be much more furtive around taking off his mask and doing that treatment. You know, ideally he'd want to, like, go into the privy or into the bathroom and make sure the door is closed and locked behind him. He'd be constantly checking to make sure he's alone and that Christine's not awake yet. But unfortunately, the way Lawrence Connor staged this scene has nothing of that furtiveness. Yeah, he does check to see if Christine's asleep, but he's not, like, looking over his shoulder constantly. I don't even believe he goes off, you know, behind a closed door. He's very... Connor's phantom is very casual about being unmasked in this scene until he gets caught by Christine, and then he flies off the handle at her. And, as I said, that just sets up the phantom's rage and anger and pain and indignation 
as totally unfounded and wrong, and in fact as something he brought on himself by being careless. So then, last but not least, we come to the final lair, Act 2, Scene 9. And there are three major significant changes to this scene, apart, of course, from the set design itself. One of which is kind of just, okay. But the other two of which, again, are really kind of problematic. So the change that's just kind of, okay, whatever, is to the final disappearance, the Phantom's final disappearance. Because, remember, there's no throne in this lair set. So, instead of that stunning final visual where he goes and sits on the throne very regally, pulls the cloak over himself, and then Meg pulls it off and all that's left is the mask, and then she kneels down with the mask as the spotlight fades out on it until there's just the final spot left on the mask, which I have to say timed right with those last five final chords always used to send chills down my spine. In the Connor production, he apparently just puts the cloak on standing, goes over to a certain spot on the stage, apparently sort of guided slash assisted by Meg, and then she just pulls the cloak away and he's gone. Again, leaving the mask, but even just like picturing it in my head, I don't think it's as effective as the original version where it's done on the throne. Like, A, I can imagine it's just not as visually arresting as the original version. But B, like with the fireballs in the graveyard scene, it seems a bit incongruous to have this last disappearing act amidst all these efforts to otherwise demystify the Phantom. And C, like with so much of Lawrence Connor's design and staging, there's rich layers of symbolism in the original version with the throne that are lost in this version. But then the more problematic changes to the final layer. So, first of all, the Phantom in Connor's final lair, is much more violent toward Christine than in the original. In the original, you believe the Phantom when he says, quote, Did you think that I would harm her? Why should I make her pay for the sins which are yours? Unquote. Because he hasn't harmed her, he vents all his hatred on Raoul. I mean, yes, he's harmed her psychologically, but he hasn't physically assaulted Christine. Whereas in Connor's staging of the scene, it's actually downright hypocritical for the Phantom to say, did you think that I would harm her? Because he's just put her in a chokehold. And then later in the scene, he flings her down on the bed and gets on top of her, implying rape. Now, he just, just, gets on top of her and gets back off, like, the staging doesn't take it any farther than that, thank God, but it still is meant to imply rape, or imply the threat of rape. So, whereas in Hal Prince's original staging, like, I would argue, in the LaRue novel, even in the worst depths of the Phantom's flipped outness, there are lines he won't cross. Lawrence Connors made his phantom in the final lair much more just plain violent and out of control. And that's kind of a theme that runs through all of the phantoms blocking in Connors' staging of the show. That sense of always being either out of control or right on the edge of going out of control. And then lastly, the part near the end of the final lair where Christine returns the ring is changed too. So in the original, he's kneeling down while the music box plays, clutching the bridal veil that she threw down earlier. And then when she comes back on stage, he says the Christine I love you to her 
and she gives him back the ring right into his hand, and they have that beautiful last moment of connection before she finally goes off with Raul. Whereas in Connor's staging, he's down on the floor trying to collect together and reassemble the scattered pieces of his music that Christine tore apart in front of him earlier in the scene. At the, quote, the tears I might have shed for your dark fate grow cold and turn to tears of hate, unquote. Instead of flinging down the wedding veil, in Connor's version, Christine takes his Don Juan triumphant and kind of shreds it, tears it apart in front of him. So then, during the little masquerade reprise, while the music box is playing and he sings that, he's down on the stage, on the floor, trying to reassemble his torn-apart music. And he does still say the Christine I love you, but I believe he's actually still down on the floor trying to reassemble his music. I'm not sure he's even actually looking at her when he says it. Now, I may be wrong in that, but that's the impression I get from the fan reviews. And he's certainly still doing that when she returns the ring, which, in fact, she doesn't put back in his hand like she does in the original. She just puts it on the organ and leaves. So, as the fan reviewers pointed out, they don't have that last moment of connection before she goes off with Raoul and before he does his final disappearance. So, as I said back at the beginning of the episode, I wanted to talk about the changes Lawrence Connors made to Phantom because I find them intensely problematic. And from the ones I've just described to the first unmasking into the final lair, perhaps you begin to see what I mean. Although, except for those, in general, it's not so much the specific individual changes Connors made that I find problematic, so much as what they all add up to when added all together. What they all add up to taken as a whole. Because, and interestingly enough, this is the one thing that the critics and fan reviewers agree on, they add up to a production that discourages its audience from feeling sympathy for the Phantom. The deromanticization, the demystification of the Phantom, like the taking away his aura of mystery and power, the portraying of the Phantom as either very violent and or always on the edge of going out of control, and of course, the setting up him himself as being responsible for Christine catching him unmasked the first time. All these elements together seriously undercut the audience's ability to feel sympathy for the Phantom. Connor's take on the ALW Phantom seems to be of a deranged, quote, magpie mind, unquote, who becomes obsessed with Christine's voice, with her as the perfect instrument for his music, and perhaps sexually obsessed with her too, and thinks that's love, and pursues it, pursues her, first creepily, then violently, and then blames her rejection, as well as all his other problems, on his quote-unquote deformity. And the really telling bit that tells me that that's Connor's interpretation is, and huge thanks again to the fan reviewers for pointing it out, that moment near the end of the final lair when Christine comes in to return the ring and they don't have that moment of connection because he's busy on the floor collecting his music. And that sort of culminates a theme that runs all the way through Lawrence Connor's blocking of the Phantom and Christine's scenes, which is this thread of, yeah, him not really seeing Christine as a person just as an instrument for his music and perhaps as an object of sexual desire. And what's so problematic about that is that, remember I talked last episode about how conventionally portrayals of disabled characters 
tend to fall into one of two stereotypes, either the innocent, asexual, perpetual child, or the sort of out-of-control brute who can't control his needs and appetites? Well, Lawrence Connors managed to have his staging of Phantom fall headfirst right into that second stereotype. And that's frankly unconscionable of Connor, because portrayals like that contribute to and legitimate, give legitimacy to, fear and stigma of disabled slash deformed slash disfigured people. And in fact, it gets even more problematic because Connor has at least once that I know of cast an actor of color as his phantom. So now he's got a black actor playing the deranged, violent stalker of a white Christine. I'm told the Christine who played opposite him was white. And frankly, in the age of Black Lives Matter, Lawrence Connor should bloody well know better. Hell, any director worthy of the name should bloody well know better. And to be perfectly honest, I wonder what the hell the actor in question feels about being asked to portray the Phantom this way in this context. Because, especially in U.S. culture, that comes on the heels of, and whether intentionally or not, taps into a long and sad history in media and popular culture of portraying black men as out-of-control, often hypersexualized, quote-unquote, brutes that are a menace to the safety of white women. That's a racist trope, a racist narrative that goes all the way back to slavery and reinforced by those portrayals in media and popular culture has been used to justify everything from slavery itself to Jim Crow to lynchings. And it's a stereotype that still affects the way black and brown men are perceived and treated today. That's one of the big things movements like Black Lives Matter are really trying to push back against and resist. So, yeah, as I said, in the 21st century, any director worthy of the name should know better than, should be more sensitive than, to play into awful racist stereotypes and tropes like that. And it would be nice if they knew better then and were sensitive enough not to even inadvertently play into awful disability stereotypes either. And the really tragic part, of course, is that Connor didn't have to. It was so unnecessary. Because even if, okay, you want to reimagine the staging and the set design, there are ways that you could do it that would still honor the spirit of the original production and honor the original production's understanding that, as Michael Crawford said of The Phantom, he's not a monster. He's a man who loves and feels deep emotion and is trying to use his creativity to express that deep emotion and to carve out for himself a space of love and acceptance and dignity in a society that's hostile to his very existence because of his difference. And yeah, if non-replica productions like Connor's would just really try to honor that understanding, that spirit of the original production, even as they try to reimagine the staging and set design, they'd stand a much better chance of avoiding falling into any of those awful stereotypes I discussed. Because, in fact, African-American actors have been cast in the original production on Broadway and, I believe, during its run in Los Angeles way back in the 90s. But because the original production is so firmly grounded in an understanding of the Phantom's humanity and of the fact that the problem is his exclusion and marginalization, not his body-slash-mind, their casting is awesome rather than being problematic and is, in fact, something I'd love to see more of. 
like, I'd love to see more diverse people cast as the Phantom himself and in Phantom in general, because that could be really powerful. That could be a really powerful way to explore the ways that race and gender and disability slash disfigurement slash deformity all intersect and intertwine together. As for Lawrence Connor's production, I talked about it with Mom after we saw it back in 2017, and we thought maybe he's trying to do his idea of a feminist or at least a woman-sympathetic phantom, because I haven't talked about Raoul here, but in fact, he doesn't come across well in Lawrence Connor's production either. He comes off as kind of a selfish douche as well. So Connor really seems to be channeling or funneling all your sympathy toward Christine. And he's really made a point of portraying Christine as the victim of male violence. But unfortunately, his take on that is so heavy-handed, so one-dimensional, like he displays no understanding of how Christine's and the Phantom's genders intersect and interact with the Phantom's experience as a person marginalized because of quote-unquote deformity. So if that's what Connor is trying to do, to me at least, it falls on its ass. It doesn't work. And indeed, as well as the divide between the critics who loved it and the fan reviewers who hated it, from what I've read, audience reaction to the Lawrence Connor production has been very mixed as well. It has gotten standing ovations, and a lot of that has to do with particularly brilliant actors who are able to inject some sensitivity into Connor's staging. But on the other hand, I've also read stories of audience members actually walking out, which I've never heard of happening with the original production. That being said, though, for the most part, audience response seems to be somewhere in the middle. People enjoy it, they're entertained, even impressed. They're just not bowled over in awe the way they are by the original. The good news, though, is that all the new productions that have been popping up in the past few years, the Russian production, the Swedish production too, I believe, the, Braz the new Brazilian production, and, of course, the new UK tour that will be starting next year, and the new world tour that just started up this year, have all reverted back to Hal Prince's staging and Maria Bjornsson's designs at least as far as I'm aware. So that's really exciting. And I absolutely cannot wait till the new world tour makes its way around to this, uh, to my neck of the woods. I'm sadly going to have to wait quite a while for that, though, because it's still somewhere in Asia. The world tour is still somewhere in Asia right now. I think Singapore was its last stop, and it looks like it's going to make its way through the Middle East and Europe first before it finally comes around to North America. So, sigh, yeah, just going to have to be patient and wait till it does. But still, definitely something really exciting to look forward to over the next couple of years. And of course, I'm really hoping it makes a good long stop in or near Toronto, so I can go see it a whole bunch of times and bask in the glory, as it were. So, I hope you've all enjoyed my discussion and analysis of the Lawrence Connor production, or at least I hope you've all found it interesting anyway. And of course, as always, I would love to hear your thoughts, reactions, corrections, if any are needed. Though, of course, I've obviously tried to be as careful and rigorous as I can, and to stick to what I'm pretty certain of. Even so, though, I'll be really interested to hear how this episode lands for folks, or how any other episode I've done lands for folks. And of course, you can get in touch with the show, with me, in any of the ways that I mentioned back at the beginning when I was talking about the non-competitive mini-contest thing. You can tweet 
at ITL Podcast, or of course, follow the show on Twitter at ITL Podcast. You can, of course, send an email to in this labyrinth at yahoo.com. You can like slash follow the show on Facebook and or join the Facebook group for the show. And if you just search In This Labyrinth on Facebook, you should be able to find both the group and the page. Oh, and of course, you can leave comments on the podcast website itself, which is https slash slash inthislabyrinth.fireside.fm. And last but not least, you can, of course, leave a rate and review on iTunes and I think on Google Play as well. And of course, it would be awesome and very greatly appreciated if folks would do that because it helps boost the podcast in their search algorithm things and helps more people find the show and be able to listen. So once again, I hope you've all enjoyed this episode and apologies again that it ran a bit long. As I said, there didn't seem to be a good or obvious place to break it up. Plus, I honestly didn't really want to spend more than one episode on this topic. So thanks very much for all your patience and hanging in for that. And even if you completely disagree with my analysis, I do hope you found it interesting to listen to anyway. And I do hope you'll all tune back in for next episode. I haven't entirely decided what I'm going to do yet, but Disability Pride, Toronto Disability Pride, is coming up this month on the 21st, so it'll likely be something related to that. So I hope you've all had a great summer since last episode, and those of you who are starting or starting back to school, congratulations, and I hope your term is getting off to an awesome start so far. And I hope you'll all have a great and phantom-filled time. Till next episode. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenters and do not reflect the views of the host, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Cameron McIntosh, the Really Useful Group, or any other person or entity. In addition, this podcast is not in any way affiliated with Andrew Lloyd Webber, the Really Useful Group, Cameron McIntosh, or with any other person or entity involved in the production of any version of Phantom.